If you can open your Bibles to Philippians 4, verses 6 through 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God will surpass all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. All right, amen. If you brought a Bible with you, would you open it to that passage in Philippians 4? And we'll dismiss the school-aged kids headed to the back. <clears throat> Glad you gathered uh, with us today as we finish up the <clears throat> the little letter that uh, Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. And we've been walking through this for <clears throat> several months and hope to finish it today, but I'm not saying we won't come back to it frequently. Um, every time I finish a good book, and we like to do that as a church, preach through books of the Bible. Um, every time I come, I feel like I'm like leaving an old friend behind as I have spent 25, 30 hours a week in this specific text for now three months. So much to say here. I told Ashley yesterday I had seven points, and she said you only get four. So <clears throat> don't count how many are up there. I'm just going to tell you there are four, maybe more. Um, the summer after uh, my freshman year of college, I, uh, I got invited to go and uh, preach at this little youth camp in, in Granis, Arkansas. And I was so new to ministry, I had just been speaking at little youth groups, and so the fact that someone invited me to come to a camp, I was so excited. And uh, I got up to this said camp, and it looked like the scene of a horror movie. I'm not kidding. It was like 30 minutes on a gravel road, uh, open air cabins. The I get up to preach the first night. There's no electricity here. They run it all by generator. I get up to preach the first night that I'm there, and this open air cabin has literally, it's like you're in a, a third world country. There's chickens uh, running. They had a pet pig um, and several pigs that we would eat later for dinner, um, but that weren't running around. Uh, dogs. And I just stand up there looking at this, and I was like, you know, that whole thing, like we're not in, we're not in Kansas anymore, kind of, um, maybe we were in Kansas. Maybe that's what Kansas is. I don't know. Um, Paul writes his letters explaining to this new church what it's like, to use Augustine's words, what it's like to be the city of God inside the city of man what it's like to be a peculiar people, a countercultural people, a people that live and operate in a different kind of way, however, still living in and doing business in and having relationships in the wider culture in which they are planted. And he's going to give them seven things. And I wish I had started here uh, this, whole, this whole series of Philippians because we may have brought out these themes. You'll see that these themes we've covered several times before. So Paul's going to attempt to do this. He explains in his letter to the Ephesians, a different letter that he wrote, one of the epistles, 
about this idea of this family of God, this city of God, that God brought people together who were once strangers, even enemies, and he made them family together. And not only that, but as they matured, that they would become this picture of God to the watching world. They would live in such a counter-cultural way that Peter would say that people are going to even stop and ask you about the hope that you have because it's not dependent upon your circumstances. So we see this theme all through Scripture of God working through a people to create this countercultural family, this city of God within the city of man. These people have a different set of values and a vision for what God desires to see, of what it means for the kingdom of heaven to come down to earth. His kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven or as in my neighborhood as it is in heaven or in my home as it is in heaven these people would treasure things differently they would work with different motives they would live different lives and the problem comes in when those ideas begin to get blurred and God's people begin to look like and value and treasure all the same things that the world around them treasures and values and likes and that's what we have in the current reality that we're in many people who claim to be part of God's family part of God's city but we see no distinction in their lives about what they treasure and your kids begin to see this that for most people who would even claim this term Christian that Christianity is a hobby for them like many of the other things they do it's not the center of everything and when they would ask, you, you, kids ask their parents, well, why do we go to church? Or why do we, why do we read the word? And their parents might say, because we're supposed to. But that's a far different answer than because we treasure Jesus above everything else. So Paul, wrapping up this letter, is going to summarize these major themes. He's already spoke about several times in this letter. But he's answering this question, how do we live in this counterculture? How do we engage with each other and treasure things differently and how's our set of values so counterculturally different than the world that we actually look like a city of God inside the city of man Jason covered verse one last week but I, I want us to read though I'm, I'm going to go ahead and read read the, the whole letter I mean the whole chapter of of chapter four and I want you to listen to it as Paul is pleading with this church in the same way that he is maybe pleading with us today. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat or I beg Euodia and I beg Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask that you also, true companion, help these women who've labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true and honorable, whatever is just and pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any ex excellence, 
If there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered in a partnership with me, giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. This fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Seven things I want to look for. Four things I want to look at that might seem like seven. First is this idea of unity in the midst of conflict. He is entreating, he is begging, he is pleading with these two women in the church that they would agree in the Lord. And much more than that, he's actually imploring the other leaders of the church that they would help them do that. We talked about this several weeks ago, that community is not the absence of conflict, but it's the presence of a reconciling spirit. You guys are going to go to Thanksgiving dinners with in-laws and uncles and all the, all the bit. And you're going to have to be this reconciling spirit. Because the world around us finds different ways to be divided about everything. They really do. Especially with platforms of social media and uh, people do not know how to conflict well. They don't know how to disagree well. And so everyone is just throwing up all over social media everything they hate about everything and finding more and more and more reasons to divide. But yet, we live in that city, but we're a part of a greater city. What Paul would say, our citizenship's in heaven. There's a different way that we operate. We have the presence of a reconciling spirit. Jesus would say, blessed are the peacemakers. This kind of unity is not normal. As a matter of fact, it's impossible. Why Paul tells the Ephesian church to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We maintain it. We don't create it. The Holy Spirit creates it. We just maintain it. But the further you grow together and the more connected you are, and especially if you do life in community, the more prickly things become. That's what Eldred says. You see, whenever we live in community, whenever we simply live in proximity to other people, sooner or later, we're going to run up against their issues, the unhealed or unholy parts of their personality, just as they will run into ours. Living in community, he says, is like a pack of porcupines sharing the same den. We all get stuck. 
And that's true. If you've done life in community, certainly in your nuclear family, certainly in your family outside of that with the, 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 the in-laws and parents and cousins, that things get prickly, but maybe even more so when you do it within a spiritual family because you come from different cultures and you value different things and you had different upbringings and God in all of his wisdom, he puts you in one spiritual family and he says, I want you to love each other more than you love yourselves. I want you to take into account their interest above your very own interest. I want you to try to outdo one another in showing honor. This is what's happening here. These two ladies are just opposed, and we don't know why, but it's hurting their Christian witness, and it's hurting the spiritual uh, family, and it's hurting everyone involved on some level, so much so that Paul's appeals that they would agree in the Lord. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And then he invites other leaders to help them learn how to agree in the Lord. These ladies, evidently, they liked each other for a while, but something happened and they just didn't like each other anymore. That ever happened to you? Don't say their names, but you know, they're those people that, that you just don't like. You love because God told you to love them, but you just do not like them. And God in his ultimate wisdom put these two ladies in the same small group. And says, I want you to learn how to love each other. You know, we started this unity in the midst of conflict because community is not the absence of conflict. We're all going to have conflict. And we're all going to be offended and we're all going to hear things and, and people are going to say things about us. It certainly it's true in the world. Certainly it's true in the city. And you know what, that's even true in, in a spiritual sense in, in the city of God, in the spiritual family that we're going to get hurt, our feelings are going to get hurt. Let me give you, and I've shared this before, but just three helpful distinctions when your feelings get hurt, when, 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 you, when you're offended, when, you, when someone says something or you feel like someone says something or someone's looking at you cross-eyed or whatever it is and you get, start getting offended, the, the first step is just to let it go. Like part of the benefits of being part of the family, the family of God, is, is when you feel a bit offended or you feel like your toes got stepped on, the first step, the easiest step is just to let it go. Just, you know what, I don't know if they've had a bad week. I don't know if they've, uh, if they've intended to do that. I'm surely they didn't. We just give them the benefit of the doubt. We're just going to let it go. And most things you really can't handle that way. You can just let it go. But if it's one of those things that really hurt you, that really stung, maybe it's a repetitive action and these people don't know how they're hurting you then the next step if you just can't let it go you try to let it go can't let it go the next step is just to give it to God we're just going to give it to the Lord we're just going to go to the Lord and say Lord I know I know you love them as much as you love me and I know you died for all those sinful things that they've done just like you died for all of my sins and I'm just going to bring this offense to you if you if you can in the supernatural realm, if you, can, if, if, if you can just heal this thing that hurt me, then I'm going to ask you to do that. We invite the Lord just to be at work in these things. We give this offense to God. But if this is one of those offenses that continue to happen, even as Paul is, is doing here, 
at some point, the, the third step has to happen, and you just got to go to the person. And I'm not even saying this, this takes two weeks. This would all, could all really happen in, a, in, in, in about 30 minutes that you try to let it go, and it just, it just keeps coming, and you give it to God, and it just keeps coming. Then with prayerful consideration, you got to go to the person. This is, what makes the, this is what makes the spiritual family so different because the world would say if someone offends you, then let's, let's hurt them back. And if we, don't, if we don't want to hurt them back, then let's just leave. Let's just divide the community, and we're going to go find and start community over here. We're going to take our ball and go somewhere else, and we're going to say bad things about them on the way out. But the spiritual community, the spiritual family, we have an inclination towards a reconciling spirit. And sometimes that's what we do. We just go to the person. Let me say this. If you've been hurt by someone and you're working through these steps and you get to go to the person I clearly did not say text the person or email the person this is something you need to have face to face unity in the midst of conflict second joy in the midst of difficulty joy in the midst of difficulty Anyone can have joy in a Hallmark movie. Anyone. I mean, it's just amazing. We, we watched about 30 minutes of a Hallmark movie that just came on last night. And I kind of get the allure. They're so cheesy. I can't get through a whole Hallmark movie. I can't do it. But for a minute, for a minute, I want to go visit the North Pole. It's not really the North Pole. It's a cool town in Colorado that's called the North Pole. But I want to go visit there because they always have looks like amazing coffee and hot chocolate and everyone's beautiful there and there's fresh bakeries everywhere, right? And you just want to go visit, right? But anybody can have joy in a Hallmark movie. We're like, like the worst antagonist in the Hallmark movie is the guy from New York who's making money, but he's still a really nice guy, right? He's just, you know what I'm saying? That's, that's the Hallmark movie for you. Joy in the midst of real life is a lot different. Some of you have walked through some pretty discouraging and difficult seasons. And to have joy in the midst of difficulty is the counterculture. This is what the Spirit does in us, is he enables us to have joy no matter what we walk through. <clears throat> Sixteen times Paul tells this little church to have joy, to rejoice. Joy is not the same thing as happiness. I remind you, happiness is fleeting and temporary and hard to hold on to. It's based on circumstances. But God never promised us happiness. He promises us joy. And we can have joy no matter what situation that we walk in because God is the source of stable and unending joy. Here's my definition of joy. It's the settled assurance of knowing that God is in control. It's just that settled assurance of knowing that God is in control. And it's when we align back into his presence that this fills our heart once again, that we're reminded of this once again. Psalm 16 says, you make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence and eternal pleasures at your right hand. When we get into the presence of God, the fullness of joy just fills us up. The song we sang uh, a few minutes ago, you reign above it all, you reign above, what, what a great song for our hearts in the midst of difficulty or terrible circumstances or things that we don't understand that, that we would sing and we would realize once again that God reigns above everything. 
God wants this little church to know this so bad. I mean, Paul wants this little church to know this so bad that he's reminding them again and again and again. He says, I don't, I don't, I don't mind reminding you one more time. In verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. He starts the book and ends the book praying that they would walk in joy. Friends, joy is a fruit, of the, a fruit of the Spirit. It should be evident in our lives. We'll talk more about this in a coming sermon in, uh, in our Advent series about joy. Look at number, the third thing, the next thing. Sorry, we're going to quick count. The next thing, peace in the midst of anxiety. This is the passage that Lacey read. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I was studying this this, this week. This is the most underlined verse in all the Bible. Well, all the Bible's on Kindle that we can actually see what people underline. More than John 3.16, more than Philippians 4.13, more than anything in the Old Testament or any psalm that we would read. This is the number one highlighted text in the Bible. And notice this is a command. This is a command that we would not be anxious about anything. This is not an option. Anxiety rises when we attach our identity to the wrong things. When we place more emphasis on our own strength rather than God's strength. When we begin to think, ultimately, this is, it's all up to us. It makes us the father of the household instead of being the dependent child. You've heard the saying to work like it depends on you and pray like it all depends on God and that might sound cliche or pretty, but it's, it's not really great theology because Paul is saying right here to not be anxious about anything. That relationship of a dependent child to a heavenly father of, Father, are you going to take care of me? It's what Jesus made sure he emphasized so many, so many times through the Gospels. That God knows what you need. He is a good father. The problem again becomes when we take the role of the father instead of the role of the dependent child. You remember that? Maybe some of you have kids that are small. They don't, they don't care about rising interest rates or what's going on with the stock market. They've not read one bit of news about the recession or possible war. They're just excited they're off of school this week. Peace in the midst of anxiety. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul kind of gets to the secret of this, of how we live with real peace. This is not just play. This is not just us just talking out of our minds. 
He says in verse 16 of chapter 3 of Ephesians, I think I have this on the screen, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Maybe your translation says in the inner man, on the inside. Why do we need a stronger inner man? Because a weak inner man results in fear and doubt and anxiety and mistrust and impotence and sin. A weak inner man leads to frustration and mental exhaustion and emotional and spiritual imbalance. The inner man is the eternal part. The real you, the spirit, the soul of who you really are. That's why Paul is saying, Lord, would you please strengthen these dear Christians on the inside that they would know and focus and, and, and be able to realize what's, what's real. 2 Corinthians 4, therefore we do not lose heart. Though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man, he uses that word again, is being <clears throat> renewed day by day. In other words, he says for the Christian, as the outside gets worse, the inside gets better. Some of you realize this even right now. I mean, just the natural state of existing, the, things get more and more painful and your body starts to fall apart. And what you used to could do, you would gladly do. Yesterday, I was trying to put some boots on to go to a soccer game and I got out of breath putting my boots on. And I was like, this is a new low, man. We're going to have to just go Crocs from now on. That's the only thing I can wear. As the outer is falling apart, as, as, as the pains of this old body that's only here <clears throat> temporary, temporarily, as we have more problems and more doctor visits, we're just so aware that everything about this fleshly body might be falling apart. But Paul says it's possible that even in the midst of that, that your inner man is being renewed the world focuses on the outer man, about how you look and what you drive and what you own and what you achieve. But God focuses on the inner man. He says in 1 Samuel 16, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The resident power is there. He believes that believers will appropriate it. He's reminding them, Paul is, to strengthen the inner man. This is about peace in the midst of anxiety. Look at the remedy here in the passage. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, what? By prayer and supplication, which is also prayer. With thanksgiving, which is also something you do in prayer. Let your request be made known to God, which is also prayer. The remedy for anxious life is a posture and a rhythm of prayer. Prayer and confidence. Because when we do that, instead of worrying about it, instead of staying up all night about it, instead of thinking it's all up to us, we give it to God. We let our request be made known to God. We bring it to God with thanksgiving. We, we bring it to God. In prayer, we bring it to God. Through supplication, we, we, just, we just bring it to God. And when we do that, it says, this supernatural transaction happens in verse 7, and the peace of God, which is this incredible supernatural peace, the peace of God, 
which surpasses all understanding. It's so crazy how you can have peace in the midst of this. It just doesn't make any sense. And the peace of God that makes no sense to, to the city of man, it surpasses all understanding, even your own, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Sometimes you, I get up here and confidently say these things and you think, well, you just must not worry with this. Listen, this, this verse to me is just so convicting and such a reminder that I don't have the strength to do anything apart from God. I told you I learned this prayer and I pray it all the time and I prayed it five or six times Friday night. I prayed it three or four times last night just when I wake up and these all these thoughts about, well, what if this and what if that and this is, you're going to have to do this and it's just, it's just tomorrow's troubles that I'm trying to suck into the middle of the night and you know how things just get even worse in the middle of the night and I pray this prayer. God, I give these people and problems back to you. It's just a prayer I pray all the time. I tell him, Lord, you know I'm trying to sleep. And if, and if you want me to stay up and pray for something, then put that burden on my heart. I'd be glad to do that. And God does that. He wakes me up in the night with a burden for someone, and I just pray as I'm laying there awake, sometimes for 10 minutes, sometimes for several hours. I just, I just begin to pray. But, but, Lord, you know I can't do anything about this problem. So I'm just going to ask that you would work while I'm asleep. And then tomorrow, if there's anything you want me to do, then just make it clear and give me boldness to do what, what only you can enable me to do as I rest and trust you. To put simply, God, I give these people and these problems to you. And then I just roll back over and try to go to bed. And it is a real rhythm that brings peace in the midst of anxiety. Next thing conviction in the midst of compromise peace and anxiety joy through difficulty unity and conflict conviction in the midst of compromise turns a corner in verse 8 finally brothers finally sisters finally family he's kind of drawing this thing to an end and he's going to tell us what what the most important thing is finally Whatever is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable, if there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, and think about these things. Well, Paul, what about those times when I'm awake in the middle of the night and just the anxiety is just overwhelming me and I just don't know what's, what's, what's right and, and next and I don't know what to think about and what to... He says, let me give you a list. Is it true? Is it honorable? Is it just? Is it pure? Is it lovely? Is it commendable? Is it, is it excellence? Is it worthy of praise? Those are the things you think about. Meditate on these things. So much of the Christian life comes down to the mind, comes down to what we fill our mind with. Romans 12, 2 speaks of the essential place of being transformed by the renewing of your mind. 2 Corinthians 10 speaks of the importance of casting down arguments from the enemy. And every high thing, he says, that exalts itself against the knowledge of God bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, that literally everything we think Paul, think, Paul says, I want you to take that thing, and I want you to bring it to the foot of Christ, and I want you to ask Christ, do you approve of this thought? Is it true and pure and honorable and excellent and praiseworthy? 
And if it's not, then you say, I'm not going to think about that. That's not, from, that's not from my good father. That's not from my father in heaven. That's from something else, but it's not from him. What we choose to meditate on matters, friends. Right actions start with right thinking. As the world around you lives in compromise, Paul says, little church, I want you to remember this. Think about the right things and practice the right things. It's not even just thinking about them. Look at how he ends that. What you've learned from me. Remember the things I taught you? What you've received. The deposited, I deposited these truth like like seeds in your mind and in your heart, that you received these things from me, that you heard these things from me. I reminded you again and again and again of these things. What you've seen in me, you saw me go hard after these things, the things that are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely. I made my life about those, Paul says. Think about these things. Then he says, practice these things. It's not enough just to think about them. We, we rearrange our life around them and our schedule around them and we talk about them and sing about them. Back to the Shema. These are the things that we talk about when we're going to bed and getting up in the morning and around the dinner table and on the way to school. We think about the things that are true and right and lovely and honorable and just and pure. Most of our lack of peace comes from our desire to focus on the wrong things to fill our minds with the wrong things. Compromise in one generation leads to captivity in the next generation. And this is where you see a lack of discipleship in the church in the West. Man, that could be a whole sermon. Let's move on. Next one. Generosity in the midst of selfishness. I wish I had more time to get into this. Verse 14, yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. You Philippians yourselves know that at the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the gospel ministry, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. See, the, the, the city of man looks to everything through a lens of a return on investment. That I want to give to things that are going to give back to me and I want to invest in things that I'm going to make money on and that's, that's, not, that's not a problem except when appropriate you've got to allow spiritual thinking to trump logical thinking and so this church from the very beginning Paul gets this church going he's not there very long he's taken off and his call to plant the gospel in other places he says from the beginning when I left Macedonia this little church would take up offerings and support me. They weren't thinking return on investment, not this church. They understood the principle of being a gospel patron. A gospel patron is one that sows seeds into ministry, sowing seeds into Paul's ministry of taking the gospel to the unknown. And everyone won because of it. The little church won because their joy and faith is increased because they're dependent on God. And God does the supernatural thing for them. And Paul wins because his needs are met and his soul's encouraged. And the, the kingdom wins because this little church because it becomes a counterculture representation of the gospel in the midst of a very self-centered culture. 
And friends, we have the opportunity to trust God and give generously as, as just part of our lives. That God would place a burden in our heart to take a step and give generously. This is what these people did. There's been some people in the life of Covenant Church, there still are some people that give so sacrificially and generously, you'll never know who they are. About once a year, they'll call me and say, Luke, what do you, what do you need? And I was like, well, we need this and this and this. And they'll just write the check. Gospel patrons. When you look at the life of Jesus, his entire ministry was funded by some wealthy women who the world discredited. As you look at the gospel of Luke and Acts, it was Theophilus who was the benefactor to this behind every great move of God are people in the background who have just a generous heart to give. Some of you have lost jobs. Some of you are really, this, this inflation thing has really pressed you. And you've got an opportunity of whether you're going to trust God or not trust him. We've got a great opportunity to trust God and to continue as a church to give generously. We're coming up on our Christmas mission offering some of you don't know what this is, but every, at the end of every year during Advent, we highlight our different mission partners and we ask our people, would you pray about what you might give to support their needs? Now, this is not a, this is not a return on investment. You, you, you might not ever see the people that these people who get this money are going to reach. You might never, never even hear, hear the stories or see the places in Southeast Asia where they're going or the churches that are planted around the world. As a church, we try to give an amount equal to 50% of our budget away to missions every year because I believe this is so important. And I also believe you can't outgive God. You just can't do it. If he can get it through you, he'll get it to you. Next one, real quick, as we get ready to close. Strength in the midst of suffering. I can do all things through him who strengthens me, right? That's the... Philippians 4.13, it's the, the verse that athletes write on them as they get ready to compete. It's what people hang in their homes or you put on coffee mugs. Most of them would never know what this passage was actually about. Paul uses this verse as a reminder that no matter what life brings, heavenly days or thorny days, falsely accused or in prison, Joseph might add, poor or homeless or hungry, Jesus might add, I can do all things. Through the power of God inside of me, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There's a myth that if we give our lives to Christ, then all of life is going to be skittles and rainbows. But that's never the promise or even the inclination from God to us through his word. As a matter of fact, he says in this world, you're going to have a lot of problems. But take heart that I've overcome the world. He tells us in John 15 that without him, we can do nothing. With Jesus, we can do all things. Without him, we can't do anything. Strength in the midst of suffering. That title might be a little misleading. Maybe I should say contentment in the midst of suffering. See, the city of man, the world around us, is the posture of the world is entitled demands plus exploited relationships plus selfish arrangements equal happiness. Entitled demands, exploited relationships, and self-arrangements. 
And you can see how countercultural this is. Entitled demands people lose their minds over the craziest thing. Claire, as a toddler, didn't want you to put, um, didn't want you to put her socks on because the underside of the sock where the seam is sewed itched her. And if you put socks on that girl, she would lose her mind, screaming at the top of her lungs, thinking we beat and abused her, everyone around us. Like, what'd you do to her? I put socks on her. She just didn't want socks on. And that's what toddlers do. There's whole social media pages to toddlers who are losing their stuff right over the smallest thing. And then you look at our culture, grown-ups who should be mature, and they're losing their mind over the craziest things. I mean, people... I love these new ring doorbells everyone has. Like, there's a neighborhood that a lot of people in our church live in. And there were grown men that were caught on a ring doorbell fighting each other, fist fighting each other over like a kid's toy that was left in the wrong driveway. People lose their minds because they're operating in the city of man with entitled demands. And exploited relationships. I want to have a friendship with you so that I can take advantage of you so that my life can be better. I'll take advantage of anyone to get what I think is owed to me. I'll stab you in the back in a heartbeat. You lose and I win. It's our culture. Then selfish arrangements. Even the good I do, I do it so you'll think well of me so that I can ultimately arrange my life in a way that's going to benefit me this is the world we live in and yet god says no i'm doing something different in my people contentment in the midst of suffering i want you to look at this verse with me real quickly He says in verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need. I mean, he is in prison and in need. But he says, I'm not speaking of being in, in need. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. If you take notes in your Bible, maybe you should just circle that word contentment. What's it going to take? This, this, is a, this, is a great lesson. this is a great lesson for all of us as we move to Christmas. As my kids are bringing me Christmas lists. These are the things I want. And those are not bad things. But those things will not provide contentment. This is why Paul says, in every situation, I've learned how to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. Different sides of the spectrum. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret. What's the secret, Paul? Of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. That I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Whether I'm in prison for another decade or the rest of my life, I can be content here. Whether I'm falsely accused by these brothers that he mentions in chapter 1 that are out trying to just tarnish my name and say all these bad things about me. Paul's like, that's okay, I can be content here. Whether I don't, have, I don't even know where I'm going to eat the next day or whether I've got a pantry full, that's okay, I can be content. This word content he uses is, is a... Is a geographic word really a geopolitical word uh saying that a, a, a nation didn't need anything from the outside they didn't need to import anything they had everything within their boundaries to take care of themselves this word content that's the word he uses they have access to everything they need within their own boundaries but he's not talking about self-sufficiency 
That idea would have been pretty great to the Greeks. That's the thing that Aristotle and Socrates, self-sufficiency, you've got everything within yourself. Just look inside, everything's in yourself. But Paul says, no, 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 this is not self-sufficiency. Maybe you would write this word down, two words, God-sufficiency, that's what he says. I've learned to be content, not because I'm self-sufficient, but because I'm God-sufficient. That God is going to supply everything I'm ever going to need. I can do all things through Christ. Joseph, falsely accused in prison for nearly two decades, did nothing wrong, just there waiting. Every time he gets a step up, he gets knocked three steps back. Every time, every time. And yet he can be sufficient. He can be content because he's God sufficient that he knows even when he gets out. And he's put over all of uh, Pharaoh's goods. He interprets the dream. And at the end, remember, his brothers are the ones coming to him because they're in this increasing famine. And you know what? What I would do if I was Joseph, I'd be like, you suckers are going to work for me now. You did this to me. And he said, no, no, no. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Because Joseph knew the power of being God sufficient in every minute. Paul knows that he's in prison. And he's talking about joy all the time. I mean, what a weird dude. He was God sufficient. This verse has brought so much joy to my heart that no matter what happens, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can endure with joy is what this means. I can endure plenty. I can endure little. I can have a lot, I can have a little, I can be in prison, I can be free, I can do whatever, I can see high and low, I can have friends and no friends, I can do everything through Christ who brings me strength. I had a tough day, oh, that's okay, I can do all things. I've been falsely accused, that's okay, I can do all things. I'm grieving the loss of someone, that's okay. God's with me, God's sufficient. I can get through this too, I can do all things. I'm in a very difficult web of relationships. I can do all things. I'm, I'm enduring a financial hardship. I can be content with very little because I can do all things. I'm experiencing financial abundance. That's okay. I can be humble even when I abound because I can do all things through Christ. Whatever situation that you walked in here with, the good news, my friend, is you can do all things through Christ. Isn't that amazing? Are y'all awake, church? I mean, come on, seriously. Last point, breakthrough in the midst of breakdown. It says in verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And my God will supply every need. This verse is mostly about financial needs. Specifically, when we put God and his mission first in his heavenly equation, he makes sure that we have all of our needs met. But I think this even carries a broader sense of truth with it. Why Paul waits to the very end of this letter to remind them to trust God in every situation, in every circumstance, is because he will supply their need. God will supply your need. We serve a breakthrough kind of God. I've been listening to this song this week couple weeks now called reason to praise and one of the lines in the reason to praise is he's the god of the breakthrough when i'm breaking down and it just ministered to my heart i've had a really difficult 10 days really difficult 10 days 
of no fault of my own or even in our church of ministering to other planters that the craziest things have happened in their churches that you could not even believe if I told you. It's the kind of thing you see on a, you know, investigative report. It's just so sick and so sad. And yet I can boldly stand in front of those churches and I can say, you know what, church, God's going to supply every need because he's a breakthrough kind of God. He breaks through when we break down. You ever feel like life is just too much? It's just too much. You ever told God, God, I can't do this anymore? This weight is too heavy to carry? This thing is, is too hard to endure? It's the exact place that God wants you in. Because when you get to the end of yourself, when you get desperate for him, that's when he starts to move. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that God is a jealous God. He wants to make sure that you know and everyone else knows that God is the hero of the story. He's the originator of the story and the hero of the story. When we look through the Old Testament, this is what we see. God waits till Abraham is in his, his 75 until he tells them that he's going to be the father of many nations. Abraham has no kids. Abraham tries to shortcut the plan by having a kid with someone else that God didn't promise he would have a kid through and all the consequences that came with that. We still see the friction in the Middle East because of that one bad decision several thousand years ago. But more than that, 25 years after the promise to Abraham is when he actually has the promised child. Can you imagine waiting 25 years for God to fulfill a promise? Why didn't God promise Abraham when he was in his 20s? When he was 25, when he was newly married, when he had all kind of energy. Oh, because then everyone would have thought Abraham was the hero and not God. Then he anoints King David, a guy who didn't even show up to the anointing ceremony. He was the runt of the crew. He was not qualified. And God said, perfect, it's my man. Then it goes really well. Then it goes really bad. For almost a decade, he's on the run from the former King, Saul, half the Psalms are him praying, God, why can't this just be easier than this? We could talk about a thousand stories in the Old Testament. This is just what God did. Because he's a breakthrough kind of God. Talk about Gideon, the smallest guy from the smallest town, meant nothing to most people, but God loved him and called him to be part of this redemptive story. And not just that, that Gideon would say yes through a couple little tests that he just really wanted to make sure that God was, he had picked the right man. He just had no confidence. And then God said, oh, you got way too many soldiers. You're going to have to go from 32,000 to 300. He just kept removing every crutch that Gideon might lean on, every one of them. He just kept moving them. Oh, no, I'm not going to let you boast in the warriors. No, you got to get rid of those. In the ones you have, I'm not even going to let them boast in their weapons. They're going to use a lantern and a trumpet. And then Joshua headed to Jericho. Look at the face that would have taken to follow Joshua in that. And he's like, the strategy is we're going to march around the city and then, then yell at the top of our voices. Who, who gave Joshua this job? God wanted to make sure that no one could say it was Joshua and his strategy that took down those walls. It was God that did it. Daniel and the lion's den, the three Hebrews in the fiery furnace, the virgin birth. I mean, God is a breakthrough kind of God. When it doesn't look good, when it looks impossible, God says, watch this. 
then on the cross. The most cruel and unfair and worst possible situation you could possibly imagine. So cruel that the disciples deserted him. All the disciples are in literal shock, weeping and grieving together. This is not how we saw this going. And now we got to go follow Peter, the guy that says all the stupid things. Then they show up at the tomb and the tomb's empty and they don't believe it. They think the body's stolen and they're actually having a meeting of what they're actually going to do. Because the body's not there and Mary said she saw him. So now our leader's crazy and without faith and Mary's crazy because she's talking to ghosts. And we're going to have a meeting and we're going to talk about what it's going to be about the Lord. And then the Lord shows up in the meeting, which is just amazing. Boys, what did y'all think? Remember, we started this when I told you that nothing is impossible with God. Now, I'm going to go and I want y'all to go pray. The Holy Spirit, part of the Godhead himself is going to come and he's going to indwell you. And he's going to give you the boldness and the power to do everything that I've asked you to do. Because I'm a breakthrough kind of God. If you'll just trust me, if you'll just put your faith in me, if you'll just take one more step. Paul says, and my God will supply every need according to his riches and glory through Christ Jesus. We're going to take communion in a minute. I'll invite the band up. Just right where you're at. I just want you to do business with God. I feel like a lot of us have settled. I feel like a lot of us are leaning on our own strength instead of on God's power. I think a lot of us are trying to use worldly tactics to get supernatural peace, and it's just not working. So my call to us just as a church, as you just bow your heads and you just be still before the Lord, is to renew your yes to him, to refresh your yes to say, God, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not where I need to be. I'm not where I want to be. But, but I want you to do these kind of things in me and through me. To bring breakthrough when I physically can't do it. To provide strength in the midst of suffering. For me to be generous in the, in the midst of the selfishness around me. And not have a scarcity mindset. To be a person of conviction when everyone else is compromising. to be a person that walks in peace and joy, to be in unity. God, I love you. I thank you for what you're doing in our church. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts just right where we're at. Lord, you know, you know, the, you know the games we play. You know the face we put on. You know, some of us are nodding our head yes to this idea about peace, but, th- but we've not had peace in a long time. Or we're saying, we're saying yes to this idea about anxiety, that we shouldn't have anxiety, but we're just crippled with anxiety. Lord, would you provide a peace that only you can provide? Holy Spirit, would you come and work in us? Maybe some of us have, are living this life of compromise. That we're just, we're just taking whatever the world throws at us and we're saying that that's the thing. God, would you lead us to repentance there? God, would you do in us what only you can do? I pray that we 
We refresh our yes. We don't know what it's going to cost us or where it's going to take us. We don't know what that's going to mean, but we're just going to lay it on the table again. Yes, Lord. Lord, I want to be where you want me to be. I want to do what you've called me to do. I, I want to be your mouthpiece to, to my neighborhood and the networks and, and, if, and it, maybe even the nations. Lord, I'm just going to put, I'm going to refresh my yes and let you, let you fill in the directions. Like Abraham, it might not make sense. Lord, you're calling me to do something that would be impossible. I, I can't do that. We would say yes anyway. And you would strengthen us in our inner man to be able to accomplish what you've called us to. Lord, our, our world is lost and broken. We're going to experience, some of, some of us going to experience that close up this week in our jobs and we meet with extended family. People who put their hope in all kind of things, they put their hope in the, in the election or in the economy or in success or status or power. Lord, you're here to just remind us that our, our hope belongs in you and only you. Pray that we would be bold, we'd be a mouthpiece for you. Or do in our hearts what only you can do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Take as much time to pray as you need to. We'll have some of the prayer team in the back. I'd love to pray with you. Maybe something heavy on your heart today. I'd love just join you in prayer. We're going to take communion too. Our communion servers are here. This is an open communion. You don't have to be a member of our church, but you do have to be part of God's family. So if there's been a time in your life where you've made that decision to cross the line of faith, put your faith and hope in Jesus, we invite you to partake. And this is just a reminder that it's God that does the work. We take the bread, we remember the body of Christ.